Philippians 2, before we read this passage, we're going to read a bigger section than normal this morning. We're going to read verses 19 through 30. I want to give you just a little bit of background, especially if you're visiting with us, before we read this section. Paul is putting a capstone on top of everything that he said from chapter 1, verse 27, now all the way down to the end of chapter number 2. He began this thought in chapter 1, verse 27, that the life of a Christian should be lived out in such a way that it reflects Jesus and it reflects the gospel, that our life actually should match up with that. And he said a lot that we've covered over the past few weeks. He said that we should strive together for the faith of the gospel. He said, know that you actually will suffer for this, so don't be surprised by that. He said, be, be like-minded and harmonious and in unity with other people. So as you're doing that, don't have strife. Don't have vainglory. Don't have pride. Don't grumble or argue. That was last week. That was such a, a shot to the gut where Paul's like, don't do anything when you grumble and argue with each other. And we have a propensity to do that. He said, but do this, be humble, put others first, take your walk very seriously, your spiritual walk, shine as lights to a dark world, because after all, Jesus did this. He came down, an ultimate act of condescension from heaven to earth. He took upon him, not just a, a potentate, not just a king, but he actually was a humble servant, Jesus was. And that humble servant became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So look, the, the story of Jesus is right in the middle of this section. It's the center of gravity for all of it. And Paul says, look, live this out. Now he's going to take all of that teaching and he's going to put a nice little bow on it by giving us two examples who are doing this humanly in the flesh as Paul is writing. He's going to give us two human examples, two role models for this of people whose behavior is actually informed by the gospel. And this section, is, it's beautiful. He's not really covering new content. He's, he's rehearsing some of the old content and saying, here's some role models, here's some people who are acting this out. So this section is a bit tougher to glean from and to preach, honestly, if I was just honest with you this morning. Uh, there is no real direct teaching. There is no, hey, do this, don't do that. There, there's just a story of these two guys who are role models for us it was interesting to me, I look back through, and we'll read the text in just a moment, I promise. But I look back through a Bible that I had as I went through uh, Bible college. So I got my bachelor's degree and my master's degree, it was five years. And as I went through, I took notes of every sermon that I heard, every chapel service, Sunday morning, Sunday, I mean, I have easily a thousand sermons plus in these notebooks that I took notes on. And I took those notes and I corresponded them to one of my wide margin Bibles. So I can open that Bible and I can tell you in college, if I heard a verse from this passage, I can just go to any passage and tell you if I heard a sermon on this. So I opened that up this week, and most, most passages I can find where I heard a sermon from, but there was Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I didn't hear one sermon out of that thousand plus sermons, not one on this particular section of Scripture, because it's not often preached, but this is why we love to go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse by verse by verse. So here we go. We're going to read it together. 19 through 30. Look in Philippians chapter number two. Paul says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus, you could also call him Timothy, shortly unto you, that I also may, may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But ye know the proof of him that as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. 
Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Now he's going to give us the second example, a man named Epaphroditus. Yet I suppose it necessary to send unto you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that he, ye had heard that he had been sick. For he indeed was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice and that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. Hold him in such a reputation. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh unto death not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. This section, I think, is especially helpful because Thomas Brooks said it best. He said, example is the most powerful rhetoric. And what I think he means by that is that we tend to be creatures that are led most by pattern more than precepts. And a precept and a principle is very helpful, but a pattern shows us what a precept and a principle cannot a precept or a principle can show us, here's your duty, that you're supposed to do this, here's some instruction for you to take and to live by. But an example or a pattern shows us that our duty is actually tangible, and it actually can be fleshed out, it can be lived out in real time. And when you read Scripture, if you're anything like me, you can begin to see what is required of us, how we should live gospel-informed lives, what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And many times, if you're like me, you can be a bit frustrated and feel like, I'm, I know I'm supposed to do that, but I, I just struggle to do it. And I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I really want to, and I end up doing it sometimes anyway. And at times we can get frustrated, and if we're not careful, we can throw our hands up and just say, well, it must be impossible. Like, I can't do this. And there is some truth to that. You can't do it on your own. You do need the Lord's help to will and to work inside of you. But it can be done. And Paul is putting a nice little bow on his instruction to this church with two men who are living out the gospel in real time. They're fleshing this out. And there are examples, human examples, of men who have got what Paul is trying to tell this church to do, and he provides them to them. Now, we have the ultimate example of the Lord Jesus, and that is enough. But there is something that is maybe extra helpful when you see someone who is sinful and weak and feeble, just like you are, who's flesh and blood and has problems and struggles just like you do, but yet they're able to get a handle on what they should do in their Christian life, and they actually do live it out. And Paul gives us these two examples, these two role models, Timothy and Epaphroditus, that the gospel has so soaked into their souls that they are actually living the life that they should for Jesus in front of people, that the gospel is informing their day-to-day, and there are concrete, tangible decisions that they're making that are actually in light of the message of Jesus and his good news. And the first one that Paul leads with is the role model of Timothy. And I love how Paul just introduces this thought of Timothy. He says, I trust in the Lord Jesus, verse 19, to send Timotheus shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Paul introduces Timothy to us, but he frames it with this thought, I trust in the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, look, I'm planning to send Timothy to you but I'm going to submit those plans to the Lord Jesus. I'm going to trust in, in Christ 
and I'm going to write my plans, and this is what I'm going to try to do, send Timothy to you, and I want to do this so that he can know your state, and he can report back to me, and I'll get some comfort from this, but I'm actually going to trust in the Lord for this. This may or may not happen. Paul is giving us a key, and he'll say the same phrase later on, that I'm trusting in the Lord. I've written my plans in pencil, but I'm going to give God the eraser and say, Lord, here's the eraser, erase them and rewrite them if you want to. I don't know for sure that I'll be able to do this, but I trust in the Lord that I, that I will be able to do this, and I'm going to submit to the master's desires. I'm not going to operate independently of the will of God and independently of what he wants for my life. Paul is making plans, strategies, he has a vision, he has something that he wants to do, but meanwhile, he is submitting this to the sovereignty of the Lord and saying, Lord, if you see fit to guide otherwise, then certainly I'll submit to that and I will submit my plans to you. And likewise, it's just a very valid lesson for us to learn. We do make plans, we do have a vision, we do have desires, we do have strategies. There's nothing wrong with you forecasting your future and trying to plan for your future. That's great. But you submit those plans to the Lord and say, this is my plan, this is my desire, this is my goal. But Lord, you may see fit to bring something into my life that I wasn't planning on. And you may see fit to take something out of my life that I was planning on having here, but I'm going to submit that to you nevertheless. This I love even as a church family for the past couple years in January, we've had a vision night where we lay out here's some plans or here's some vision for the future and here's where we'd like to go and this is what we're working towards. And I love that we'll talk about, hey, we, we want to hire a minister of music in this calendar and we still want to do that and we're working diligently at that and we want to uh, plant a church somewhere in the next 18 to, to 24 months here in our region and we want to burn the note on this place in the near future. I love all of that. That's still our plan, our goal, our desire we're working towards, but at the same time, we understand we submit it to Jesus. And we say, Jesus, you may see fit to guide otherwise, or you may see fit to do something else, and we, and we lay this in your hands. We work diligently, but we trust in you. And Paul does that just right out of the gate. I'm trusting in the Lord to send Timothy to you and tell, who is this guy, Timothy? Well, I'll give you two things that I think that he is. I think that he's a model first of total service. I'm going to send him to you that I may be of good comfort when I know your state. Verse 20 and 21. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally or genuinely or sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. Paul says, here's a man who will sincerely and genuinely care for you. And this is a man, he says, is like-minded. Now, if you remember the instruction that he's given up to this point, Paul told this church in verse 27 of chapter 1 that they should strive together for the faith of the gospel with one mind. He told them in chapter 2 that they should be like-minded and of one mind. He told them in the next verse that they should in lowliness of mind esteem others better than themselves. He told them two verses later that they should put on the mind of Christ. So Paul has instructed them over and over and over again to be like-minded, to have one mind, to do this. And he says, let me give you an example of a man who is like-minded. Let me give you a guy who actually has my mind and actually has the mind of Christ, and he will sincerely, genuinely care for you. He will actually put you first. Paul doesn't say Timothy's a wonderful preacher and pastor, although Timothy probably is. Paul doesn't say that Timothy is the world's best protege, although he probably is. He doesn't say that Timothy is a very devout, holy man, although he probably is. What Paul says about Timothy is that he will genuinely care about you. Exactly what he's been trying to get the church to do all through this section. To esteem others better than themselves, in lowliness of mind, to prefer other people, to have humility. He wants them to do this. He says, here's a man who does do this. He actually will prefer you. He's not 
He's a young man in ministry, but he's not full of, of ambition and pride and selfishness. He's not swallowed up by the pride of life. He is actually ministering for you. He's putting you first. This to me is a, is a tremendous challenge because Timothy is, is a man that I, I personally have an affinity towards because he's a young man who Paul writes elsewhere and says, look, don't let him despise your youth. You can be an example of the believers. You're young, but you can do this. So as a young minister of the gospel, I take stock in that and I find some comfort in that. And here's this man who, who's not swept up with the pride of life, but is putting other people first sincerely, genuinely, who's caring for them. And, and it's not about him. It's about other people. To show you maybe how like-minded Timothy was, I'll reference 1 Corinthians 4. Paul writes a different letter to the church at Corinth. And if you know about the church of Corinth, they were a mess, to put it lightly. And Paul just kind of repudiates them over and over and over again about all of their inconsistent behavior with the gospel. You're not living like a Christian. That doesn't match up with Jesus. That doesn't match up with Jesus over and over and over and over again. But he gets to chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, and he tells them in verse 16, I beseech you, be followers of me. Paul says, Corinthian church, look at how I've lived and just try to do that. Just try to actually follow my example, follow my model. But then he says in the next verse, because I want you to be a follower of me, I'm going to do this for this cause I've sent unto you, Timotheus. I'm sending Timothy to you. He's my beloved son, faithful in the Lord. He shall bring you into remembrance of the ways which be in Christ. Paul says, I'm so concerned about you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send Timothy to you. He said, Paul, if you're so concerned, why don't you send yourself? Paul didn't need to send himself because him and Timothy were of like mind. Timothy was, in essence, a, a replication or a carbon copy of Paul in that they both had the mind of Christ and they both lived that out in real time. And Paul knew, I can send him and he will be a valid ambassador and representative of me. He will, he will show you how I live because he lives the same way. We're together in this. Our behavior is consistent with each other. So this man is very close to the Apostle Paul, very close to his heart. And Paul says he is like-minded. He does put other people first. But verse 21, this is different than the typical normal human behavior. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. There's a bit of debate about who all is. I'm not going to bore you with those details this morning. You can suffice it to say, Paul is saying the normal way that most people live is a way of self-interest. People don't naturally seek other people's benefit. They naturally seek their own benefit. And if they do seek other people's benefit, it is subject to their own personal benefit first. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to get what I need. And then if I have leftover, then I'll give to somebody else. If I have time in my schedule, then maybe I'll go help somebody. If, if I have some money that's just, you know, after I pay all the bills and after I get my wants and after I do this and then after I have some spending money and have some fun and buy eight new pairs of shoes, then I'll give, you know, to missions or give, you know, alms to the poor. Then I'll help somebody else. That's the typical way of living. But Paul says Timothy is living a different lifestyle. Timothy is a man, he doesn't live by, by that mantra. He's a man who actually will put other people first. He has the humble, self-giving, self-sacrificing example of the Lord Jesus Christ in his mind. And this man actually is a luminary in a dark world because of this. Because he will put you first. And Paul observed that most people are too preoccupied with their own self and their own interests and their own time to actually be interested in other people. And that can definitely be the case for us. That we can fill up our schedules, that we can 
be so self-concerned that we never have time or means available to help other people. And Paul says, look at this guy. This guy doesn't operate this way. This is a guy who's like-minded, like I want you to be. This is a guy who puts other people first, like I want you to do. This is a guy who doesn't operate out of a self-serving motive, like you are prone to do. I want you to, to heed this example, and I want you to take note of him. And what he says in verse 21 is, I love. He says, Timothy seeks other people's benefit, but he correlates this to the work of Christ at the end of verse number 21. This is what he says. All seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ." What Paul is indirectly saying is that when you seek other people's benefit, you are actually serving the Lord Jesus through this. That you are actually, when you're putting other people first, you're actually putting Jesus first. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 25. That if you, as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. He says, if you give a cup of water in my name or you give food in my name or you do something in my name, you're doing it to someone else, but you're actually doing it for me. And he says, Timothy is a guy who serves other people and look at his example. But beyond that, he says that Timothy is a model of tested service. Not just total, but tested. Here's what he says in verse number 22. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with the father, he has served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Paul says, you know the proof of him. You know that his metal has been tested. You know that he's legitimate. You know that he's the real deal. Timothy would have been very familiar with the church at Philippi. If you remember our first sermon in the series, we looked at the start of the church at Philippi, and Timothy was there for that. The first church that Timothy ever saw planted was Philippi. Paul picked him up in Lystra and Derby. They went to a few churches that were already established and they confirmed them and they encouraged some people. And then they went over into Macedonia. The first church that Timothy ever saw planted was this church at Philippi. He was there with Paul when Paul did this. So he knows this church intimately and well. A decade has passed, 10 years have gone by, and Timothy still is serving with, the, with Paul consistently. And Paul says, you know that he served with me as a son with a father. Now understand first century. If a son wanted vocational training, you did not send the son to university, thereby incurring a lot of student debt. You didn't do that. A son would train with his father in the family vocation. That was how you got training. That's how you got education. That's how you got work. This is why we believe that Jesus would have actually known how to operate a saw, that he would have known his way around a carpenter shop. We don't have any verses that tell us Jesus operated the saw. We don't have any of that, but we can speculate that as a young man, 14, 15, 16 years old, in the home of a carpenter, that Jesus would have naturally been under that tutelage and he would have picked up some of those family skills. That was just very normative in this genre of time. So Paul says, Timothy is my son, he's training with me. He's my protege. He actually is learning from me. He's picking this up. And you know the proof of him. He's been a good protege. He's been a good disciple. It's been a decade now. He's learned a lot. He's grown a lot. And you can trust in this guy. He's passed every test with flying colors. He's a son as with a father. And then he says in verse 23 and 24, basically, as soon as I have some new information, I'm going to send him to you. And I hope to come along with him. I trust in the Lord that I'll be able to do as well. What Paul's saying is, I'm going to pump the brakes on Timothy coming to you. He's going to be coming eventually. Paul's in prison right now, and he said elsewhere that he doesn't know what's going to happen. 
Maybe he'll be executed. Maybe he'll be exonerated. Paul does not know. He told us, I hope that I will actually be exonerated because this will actually be for your good. And I think that this is what's going to happen. And he indicates the same thing here. As soon as I know how it will go with me, I will send Timothy to you. When the word comes, when we get news of what's going to happen with me, we're in a holding pattern right now. But when that comes, then I'll send him to you. And I trust in the Lord. I'm hoping that I'll be able to come alongside of him. I'm hoping that I'll be released and you'll get to see both of us for this big family reunion that will both be there. But regardless, even if the news is bad, I'm going to send Timothy to you. He's going to come with the news as soon as we know what's going to happen with me. I don't know if it's going to be a week, a month, a year. I don't know. But whenever we know, I'll send him to you. So here's a man, Timothy, an example of a man who's of the same mind, the mind of Christ, a man who clearly places other people first, a man who takes the way of humility by, by the road of the cross, a man who lives out the good news of Jesus. And Paul says, what I just told you to do, let me show you a guy who's doing this. Let me give you a man who's living this out in real time, and let me give you a second guy, role model number two, Epaphroditus. Verse number 25. Yeah, I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. So what Paul's going to say is Timothy's going to come eventually, but Epaphroditus is coming now. Epaphroditus is the man who is going to carry this letter to the church at Philippi. So they're reading this letter, and Epaphroditus is going to be there right there with him. Now, we don't know a lot about Epaphroditus. Really, what we know about him is just contained in these few verses. We don't know a lot. We can at least know this, that Epaphroditus had a pagan background. We know that by his name. Epaphroditus was a very common name in this day and age, and it's actually based on the Greek goddess of love and beauty, Aphrodite. So the Romans had their god Venus, the same god, but the Greeks called her uh, uh, Aphrodite. And the name Epaphroditus literally means favorite of Aphrodite. So we know that his parents are naming him with a Greek goddess in mind. These are pagan people. These are, he did not grow up with a Jewish or a Jesus background. He would have been in his adult life introduced to the good news of Jesus and have believed. So here's this man, Epaphroditus, and we learn that he too is a model of service. Look in verse number 25. Not just Timothy, but Epaphroditus. Yeah, I suppose it's necessary to send unto you Epaphroditus. Then he's going to give five epithets about Epaphroditus. First, he's my brother, my companion in labor, my fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. Paul says he's, he's a brother. Very foundational, just in, in a relationship between believers. It'd be very appropriate for me, if you know Jesus as your Savior, to say, you're my brother or you're my sister, that we are all adopted into the family of God and we're brothers and sisters in Jesus. He's a brother. He's a companion in labor. Paul said, we know this about Epaphroditus. He was a co-laborer. He was a co-worker of Paul's in the gospel, that he served with him in the gospel some way. He also says he's a fellow soldier. Apparently, he was working diligently, and he had a bit of a fervor about him that he would serve. I don't know if Paul's thinking of Philippi, the Roman colony that was founded as a military colony, but he says he's a fellow soldier, and he also says he's your messenger, so you sent him. We know Epaphroditus came from Philippi. He's your messenger. He's your apostolos, your apostle, your sent one, and he ministered to my wants. He's one that was a ministrant to my need, to my wants. Understand what Paul is saying here. First century prison, where Paul's at, is very different than our American prison. Right, Paul does not have yard time. 
Paul does not have TV. Paul does not have prison clothing or three meals a day. First century prison, you're locked up, and it was up to your friends and family and close associates to supply your basic needs. If you needed clothing, someone had to give it to you. This is why Paul writes elsewhere that he wants them to bring a cloak to him, probably because his clothes were wearing out. Very practical. If you wanted to eat, someone had to bring you money to go send a messenger to go buy from the local market and bring it back to you or something, or bring you some food. You're going to starve to death if no one supplies your wants and supplies your needs. This is why Paul loved this church so much, because Paul's in prison, and those that were very closely associated with Paul are beginning to distance themselves a bit. And they're beginning to say, you know what? When you were running around planting churches, we were all on Team Paul, hip, hip, hooray, Paul. But now that you're in prison and you could be executed for declaring that Jesus is King of Kings and he actually is the potentate and Caesar's not, now that this is happening, some people are beginning to stiff arm Paul a little bit and they're not wanting to associate with him as closely. And Paul loved the church at Philippi because they never distanced themselves. They never stiff-armed him. They never put him at arm's length. They always were just bonded with him and said, it doesn't matter what happens to you. We are with you through thick and thin. And they have sent a care package. We'll see this at the end of the book. They have sent a care package with Epaphroditus to Paul just to be able to help him live, to help him eat, to help him have some clothes, probably by way of, of money. But they've sent this with Epaphroditus, a man who apparently has volunteered and signed up for the job that I'm going to make an 800-mile trip to go see Paul and come back, a long trip, a grueling trip. I'm going to do this to serve Paul and to help him out. What an example of a man who's putting other people first. I don't know if Epaphroditus had a wife. I don't know if he had children. I don't know his background. But regardless, he volunteered to go and to give this to Paul. And Paul says, he's, he's a model for you. He's a fellow soldier. He's, he's a minister. He's your sent one. He's someone who's ministering to me. He's a brother in Christ. Here's a model of service for you, Epaphroditus. But beyond that, something really unique to him is he's a model in sickness. Look at verse 26. Here's Epaphroditus, the fellow soldier, the companion, the brother who ministered to Paul. He says about him, he longed after you all. And he was full of heaviness. Why was he full of heaviness? Because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. What Paul is saying is that Epaphroditus longed for you. Epaphroditus was homesick. He loves you. He wanted to be with you. We were having a good time, and he was ministering to me, but he was homesick, and he longed to be with you, and he got sick. And that sickness was nine to death. It brought him to death's door. Now understand, in antiquity, you didn't just go ding-dong ditch death and run away. When you knocked on death's door 99 times out of 100 in the first century, you're walking through the door. But Paul says this man was sick, and he was sick nigh unto death, and this, the Lord had mercy on him. And not just on him, but upon me also, because my sorrow actually would have been compounded had Epaphroditus died. And I love that Paul is so human here. Elsewhere in chapter 1, Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I have a desire to depart and be with the Lord. But don't think for a second that Paul had, had no 
no humanness about him when it came to death. It wasn't just, well, someone's going to die, whatever, there with Jesus, no big deal. That's not his approach at all. He says, if he would have died, I would have had sorrow multiplied. I would have sorrow upon sorrow had this man had died. He would have sorrowed about it. Now, we understand that we sorrow, Christians do, we sorrow not as those that have no hope. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We know that we can depart and be with Christ. So we have this hope on top of our sorrow that adds joy to the scenario, but there still is sorrow when someone dies. There still is mourning. There still is grief. And Paul is saying this. If this guy would have died, thank the Lord he had mercy on him because if he would have died, I would have had sorrow. But notice what he says in verse number 26 about Epaphroditus. He longed after you all and he was full of heaviness because ye had heard that he had been sick. So get this. My man's about to die. And he is concerned and full of heaviness not because he's about to die. He's concerned and full of heaviness because the church back home heard that he was sick. So here's, here's a guy in the middle of sickness not worrying about himself actually, not concerned about himself actually, actually concerned about the people at home because they heard about him and he doesn't want them to worry about him. You get that? You get how, how lowly this is? You get how big of an example this is of him putting other people first? That even in his sickness, he's not self-absorbed. He's not grumbling. He's not complaining about it. He's thinking of other people. Now, I read that and I think, I got some crowing to do. I sneeze and I start to complain and grumble about it. I get like the cold. I mean, not, not sick, nine to death. I get the cold and it's woe is me. You know, wife, will you please baby me because I'm feeling sick today? How many wives can relate with this? Your husband's a bigger baby than you are when he's sick. Few of you are honest. I'll be the first to it. I am. I'm the biggest baby in the world when I'm sick. But what a lesson. What an example of a guy who's about to die from his sickness and he's still thinking about other people and he's still concerned for other people and he's still not self-absorbed about it. He's not grumbling. He's not complaining about it. This guy is actually continuing on trying to minister to Paul even in the midst of his sickness. It's, it's a beautiful picture of this man and what, what has happened to him. By the way, side note, this is one of the many reasons why I'm completely against the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, and it makes no sense in light of this verse, that why would there be anything for this guy to worry about, that the people back home are worrying about him when he's sick, if there, if there actually was nothing to worry about? There is something to worry about. He, he doesn't want them to be concerned about his plight, and, and he is concerned for them through this process. But Paul says, here's a guy, in the midst of his sickness, he's a model, and God had mercy on him. And God spared him. And I think the Lord that God spared him. And I think the Lord that he's still with us. So, verse number 28 through 30, last part. He's a model of sacrifice. Here's what Paul says about this man. I sent him therefore the more carefully, or you could say eagerly. So Timothy, I'm going to pump the brakes and hold back. I'm not going to send him right away. But, but Epaphroditus, I'm sending him right now. Why? Because he longs for you. He's homesick. Why? because he's someone that just went through a big sickness. I want him to get home. I want you to care for him. So I'm, I'm trying to get him out of here. It's very likely that Epaphroditus showed up and said, Paul, I'm here as long as you need me, buddy. We don't know that for sure, but it's very likely that he said, Paul, I'm here for you, bro. 
Whatever you want, whatever you need, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to help you. But Paul says, I'm sending him eagerly. I actually, I love him. I want him with me, but I want to get him back to you. He's really, he's really missing you. And, and really, he just went through a deep sickness. So I want to get him back to you as quickly as possible. I send him more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice. You're going to have a big old reunion. You're going to hug it out. You're going to love each other. And why? That I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation or in honor or respect him because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. Here's what Paul's saying. I want to get him to you quickly and when he gets there, I want you to rejoice. Have a reunion. Have a good time. You rejoice. I'll rejoice that he's actually home, home quickly and safely with you. But then he says in verse 29, a, a verse that puts question marks in my mind at least. He says, receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. He says, receive him gladfully. Gladly, gladfully is not a word. Receive him gladly and give him respect and give him honor. Now I read that and I thought, why would you possibly need to tell the church that? Like here's this guy that they sent, that he loves them and they love him. They knew he was sick. Now he's going to show up at home, not sick anymore, but well. You're going to hug it out. Why in the world, Paul, do you need to tell them, receive him gladly and give him respect and give him honor and, and hold him in high reputation and high regard? Now, I don't, he, Paul doesn't say, I cannot give you an answer for sure. I'm just going to give you pure speculation on this. This is, this is Mark's speculation on why potentially Paul had to tell them this. I think there's a chance that Paphroditus shows up with this letter to the Philippians and they rejoice, they have a good time and then they open up the, the letter from Paul and they begin to read that Paul loves them and, and things are great and strive together for the faith of the gospel and you've been with me and you hip hip hooray and then Paul starts to say and get along and don't fight and stop grumbling and in chapter 4 he's going to name two people Yodius and Syntyche those, those two girls tell them to stop squabbling with each other tell them to get along and naturally, if, you, if you're a church member at Philippi and you're reading this letter from Paul, you're thinking, how he know we were fighting, right? If, you, if you're Yodius or you're Syntyche, you're, Paul names you and calls you out on the carpet and you're like, hey, wait, what? Like, how did he know that we were fighting with each other? Like, okay, this isn't gonna take me very long. Paul knows this. Epaphroditus went to him. Epaphroditus was here and knew our scenario. You little narc, like you, you ratted us out, right? I mean, if they're, any, if they're human like I am, they're having these thoughts, you know, snitches get stitches. What are you doing telling him our problems and airing our dirty laundry? I don't know for sure if this is why he tells them this, but I could see this natural tendency inside of them to say, hey, why did you tell him all that? Like, wouldn't you have just like kept glossed over it and just been all happy-go-lucky? Like, why did you have to tell him a little bit of our problems that we're fighting with each other? Was that necessary? But apparently Epaphroditus had done this and Paul corrected them a little bit for it. And so he's telling them, look, receive him gladly. Give him respect. Give him honor. He deserves it. This is a very biblical principle that you give honor to whom honor is due. And Paul is saying, this man put me first. This man put you first. This man knocked on death's door for the sake of the gospel. This man has ministered to me. This man is living out the gospel. So respect that. Honor that. Love that. Cherish that. Esteem that. Verse number 30, last one. Because for the work of Christ, he was nigh to death. Nigh to death, not 
not just because, for the work of Christ, he was nigh to death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. I don't know when Epaphroditus got sick. Maybe it was on the way there. And Epaphroditus, he doesn't hole up in a, in a hospital somewhere and say, hey, I'll get there when I can. But there was a sense of urgency, and, and I need to get this to Paul ASAP. Paul's in need. Paul's in want. Paul, if we don't give him some money, how's he going to eat his next meal? I need to get there. And he gets sick, and he presses on, and he presses on, and he's sick nigh to death for the work of Christ because he wants to serve Paul, and he wants to serve Jesus, and he wants to not regard his life, but to put other people first. I mean, an example from the model of Jesus that he's willing to be obedient unto death if need be, to not regard his life. And Paul says he supplies your lack of service toward me. Now, Paul's not griping at them. He's not telling them, you didn't give me enough. So Epaphroditus, you know, he, he chipped in out of his own pocket because you didn't give enough to me. What he's saying is Epaphroditus was able to give something to me that you were not able to give to me. He was able to supply something that was lacking that you could not give to me. You say, what's that? His presence. Epaphroditus was able to come and be there with Paul. This is why it was so important to this man that he deliver this to Paul personally. You think about this, why not just UPS it to him, right? Like why not transfer him some PayPal money and, and Prime 2 day it to yourself or something? He could have gotten, this could have gotten to him a different way. They had ships and cargo and messengers. Like they could have sent it with somebody else if they needed to. Why through Epaphroditus? Because he wanted to be there in person. He wanted to hug him. He wanted to cry with him. He wanted to love on him. He wanted to look him in the face. He wanted to, he wanted to spend some time one-on-one -on -one with Paul. It was important to him that they be there in person, communicate, and he was able to supply something. The church at Philippi had done so much for Paul and administered with him, but not all of them could be there. But Epaphroditus could, and he would, and he pushed on despite sickness to be there. And Paul knows this, and he recognizes this, and he says, this means something. Here's a man, not for himself, not for no vainglory, no strife here in this man, but this man is trying to humbly serve other people. He's trying to put me first. He's trying to love me. He's trying to, to show Jesus. To, he's trying to live this out in real time. Take note of this guy. And Paul says, all of, all of his writing, all of this example and the, and the takeaway is this. Here, here's the whole conclusion. It's, it's not complicated. It's a simple text. Paul's giving them instruction all through chapter 1, verses 27, 28, 29, all through chapter 2. And he gives them these two examples. He says, look, this, what I'm prescribing for you, it's attainable. It's possible. You can actually live this way. You can actually have the gospel in mind and have a lifestyle that reflects that and we know this because Timothy did and Epaphroditus did. And he says, these guys are living out, striving together for the faith of the gospel. They're living out suffering on behalf of Jesus and his work. They're living out being like-minded and in harmony and not strife and not vainglory and not complaining and not arguing. Not arguing. They're living out humility. They're living out placing other, others first. They're shining as lights in a dark world. And what he's trying to get the church to do is the same thing that I'm trying to get you to do is, is to see this and to be provoked unto good works by them. And to say, this is not some pie in the sky, lofty instruction that I can never, I can never get to in my Christian walk. This, he humanizes it. And he says, this is tangible. This is real. 
These guys are concrete examples of doing what I just told you to do, so you do it as well. And I think what an example for us to look at and say, okay, I want these two men who lived centuries ago to provoke me into good works. For me to take the sum total of what Paul's covered in unity and harmony in Jesus and say, you know what? I'm gonna grasp it. I'm gonna get a handle on this. I'm gonna strive for this because it can be done.